ми з вами можемо і повинні думати тільки про те, як перемогти. Перемогти на полі бою, на політичному фронті, в інформаційному протистоянні, в економічній площині. Всюди віримо у себе, допомагаємо одне одному, захищаємо інтереси України і знаємо, що буде мир. Ukrainian special forces and guerrilla units strike deep inside Russian-occupied Crimea, hitting two airfields and a munitions depot, challenging Moscow's control of the peninsula. The Ukrainian armed forces, meanwhile, pressed ahead with a counteroffensive in the south aimed at retaking the Russian-occupied Kherson region. And as fighting in the eastern Donbass region remains stalemated, Russian forces have suffered as many as 80,000 war casualties already, more than the Soviet Union suffered in 10 years of fighting in Afghanistan. This has all led many observers to conclude that Ukraine can not only survive this war, but it can win it decisively. But what would winning look like? What would be necessary to achieve it? What would it mean for the future of European security? And perhaps most importantly, are some Western policymakers harboring a fear of victory? So stick around, we've got a lot to discuss. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s Funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is David Kramer, who serves as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. Welcome back to The Vertical, David. Great to be back, Brian. Thanks a lot. Great great to have you. David, you recently co-authored a piece uh, for The Bulwark with with Stephen Began, Eric Edelman, and Dan Feta titled, With Enough Help, You Ukraine can win. In that piece, you and your co-authors, all veterans of the U.S. foreign policy establishment, wrote the following. There is a difference between thwarting Russia's maximal objectives and and Ukrainian victory. Playing for a tie runs the risk that Russia can accomplish in a war of attrition what it failed to achieve in its initial blitzkrieg, the destruction of a functioning, sovereign, sovereign and independent Ukraine. Moreover, allowing the fight to devolve into an endless war risks endangering the lives of many Ukrainians and jeopardizing continued popular support in the West for assisting Ukraine. David, let's start with the basics, because this piece you all wrote got me thinking a lot. What does a victory look like? What does the West do need to do that it's not doing thus far to help Ukraine achieve it? So uh, let's start with what what victory looks like, Brian. Uh, Victory to me means that Ukraine drives Russian occupying forces off of Ukrainian territory. Um, Whether you pick your start date as February 24th when the reinvasion began or going back to 2014, the reason I I raise that is we've seen strikes now on Russian forces on on the Crimean Peninsula. Uh, So the Ukrainians do seem to have Crimea still in their sights very much. President Zelensky has clearly stated he doesn't view the war as being over until Crimea's return to Ukrainian control as well. So to me, victory means Ukraine regains control over its territory, uh, reestablishes uh, full sovereignty and territorial integrity, and and that I think is the clear. 
clear definition of, of Ukraine's victory. Um, in turn, that means Russian defeat. It means driving Russian forces out of Ukraine. And, and I would argue that in order to help achieve that, it is important for Western leaders, starting with the United States, but working closely with our allies, to declare in no uncertain terms that our policy is to help Ukraine to victory and to achieve a Russian defeat. We, I don't think there's any reason to hold back in saying that our objective is to see Ukraine emerge victorious with full control over all of its territory and to say that um, a Russian defeat as a result of what they have done in Ukraine is, is our policy and our objectives. Well, there's the, the yeah, I, and I agree with you on the declarative part. I, I I wish we would be more forthcoming about that. In terms of material support, is there are there things we need to be doing right now that we're not doing to help Ukraine achieve a victory? I, I think we've gotten much better, um, and and you and I have talked about this many times before. I, I think it was a mistake to have waited as yes. long as the administration did in providing military assistance. There was that fear that doing so would provoke Putin into uh, action. Of course, we saw him move no matter what we were going to do. And the administration also was pretty clear in assessing that Putin planned to invade Ukraine. Um, and, and so I think they got off to a slow start. They have been much better, particularly in the past few weeks, with the delivery of HIMARS and other uh, kinds of mobile uh, rocket systems that the Ukrainians are using very effectively in mm -hmm. taking out Russian ammunition depots and command centers and other things, uh, destroying a number of Russian aircraft uh, at a base in, in Crimea. So I think we have gotten much better. I, I, I wish we would stop with the drip, drip, drip approach. Uh, which is we provide a couple of HIMARS here, a couple there. Um, I, I'm not suggesting we flood the system because that brings some problems in its own right, but I, I just think that we need to be faster with the systems that the Ukrainians need. Um, but, but I do think we have gotten better at this. We just need to be clear that it, it, this comes back to the, the uh, declarative statement that what our objectives are. It's not to help the Ukrainians defend their, their territory. It is to help them achieve victory. And there is a huge difference between the two. So you would say we need to just continue doing what we're doing, maybe step it up a bit. Is there any like I, I don't I can't think of any weapon systems that Ukraine is requesting that we're not giving right now. We seem to be giving them everything they need. But do you see other things that we should maybe be adding to the mix? The only thing I can think of, Brian, that I think they've been asking for that we have not provided, and there was the whole issue about the Polish MiGs, if you remember, right. a few months ago with the aircraft, um, and there has been some talk about that. Uh, again, I, we, we seem to be a little behind. I, I, I'm not uh, by any means expert enough on military issues to know whether it would be the right thing to do or not to provide uh, um, Western military jets to the Ukrainians. The training involved in all of that yeah. are, are big issues. But um, if we wind up doing it, I, I think we will have regretted the time we wasted thinking about it. These right. are things we should have thought about long before. And, and so if we're not going to do it, we should just end the Ukrainians' request for it. Um, but if we are going to do it, 
time is of the essence. Right. I just read recently that Slovakia is providing their MiGs to Ukraine. No, I think that supposes that they, those are going to be replaced with, with, with F-16s or F-35s or something from the U.S., I would imagine. They're not going to give up all their fighter jets and not have them replaced. Um, but this seems that the model, the Polish model, seems to be being replicated by Slovakia, if I can believe what I've been reading in the newspaper lately. And, and there's a there's a good example. If that winds up coming to fruition, then we should have done it with the Polish right. MiGs um, several months ago. There there is an example where time elapsed that cost Ukrainian lives right. because we didn't have a decision made ahead of time on whether we would do that or not. Now we we may be winding up doing it as you indicated with the Slovaks. And if that were the case, we should have done it when the polls wanted to do it several months ago. Right. And, and one does have to wonder, as you've indicated, David, imagine if we had been supplying Ukraine with these kinds of weapon systems in December, January, right, early February, they would have been ready. And the, the, the war might have gone even worse for Russia than it already has. As somebody that's worked in government, I mean, what do you see the problem is? Is the problem a lack of political will? Is the problem bureaucratic inertia, uh, logistics? What is what is what is slowing down the the delivery of weapon systems? Well, I think initially it was concern that if we had gone ahead and done so, it would provoke Putin into action. And this is where, again, you and I have talked about this before. I don't quite understand the logic there. We had intel mm -hmm. that proved to be exactly right that Putin was going to invade essentially with no matter what we were going to do, whether we provided Ukraine assistance or not. So if we were convinced Putin was going to invade, we should have been providing Ukraine with that military assistance. So I think, I don't know if it was a decision made or just general inertia, as you, as you suggested, that prevented us from doing so at the beginning. But the fact is we didn't provide enough at the beginning. We are making up for it. We are doing a much better job now. But I, I do think that there is some division within the uh, Biden administration, yes. but also even some division within Europe and between Europe and the United States on what our clear objectives should be. I think if you look at the Brits, the Poles, the Balts, uh, they are with those who argue our objective should be to help Ukraine win and defeat Russia. If you look at the Germans or the French, uh, some others possibly, I don't think they're completely on the same page. So I think what's going partly into the administration's thinking is we, we want to maintain unity in Europe. We don't want splits to emerge there. Um, but I think there have also been a few splits within the administration. Each time we have ramped up assistance, Putin has not escalated. Right. Um, and I think that, you know, you, you and Maria Snegovia wrote a, a great piece in foreign policy about, uh, you know, the the concern about uh, escalation and cornering and all of that. And we have to remember that every time we have responded forcefully, Putin has backed down. Yes. Whether it was Turkey in 2015, Syria with the Wagner mercenaries, even in his book, by the way, remember um, Putin, when he was telling that story about the rat, it was Putin who ran off, not the rat. Not exactly. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and so Putin is the one who I think does, for all of his perverse thinking, um, have respect for NATO, and neither he nor his generals wants a confrontation with NATO in the West. And I think we have to remember that we actually are really strong, and, and Putin knows it. And, yep. and always have to be mindful. Of, of the concern of escalation. You have to be mindful of the possibility, I don't give it high odds, mindful of the possibility of some WMD deployment. But we can't be 
uh, paralyzed out of fear that if we do X, he'll do Y, and we wind up not doing X. Um, and so it seems to me we have to continue to provide what the Ukrainians need in order to achieve victory, and while being mindful of the risk of escalation, not be not be blinded right. by it. Well, thanks for bringing that article up that Maria and I wrote. We wrote it for a reason. We wanted to get this into the bloodstream because the evidence just went so against the conventional wisdom. And as we conclude in that piece, sometimes a cornered rat is just a cornered rat, and that's about it. It's not really all that exactly. all that dangerous. You, you mentioned alluded, and this is something we've talked to about a lot, and I'm, we're seeing it kind of pop up in press reports now more about the splits in the administration, about the which tend to, it, it, again, it looks like a split between the NSC and state, effectively. State wants to take a more hawkish line and, and the NSC wants to take, a, 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 is more cautious. Um, how do you, I mean, how do you see this developing at the, I mean, do you see any side getting the upper hand in this at, 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 at the moment? Or do you, do, do you do, how do you see this, this debate re, uh, resolving itself? Or do you? It, it, it. It seems to uh, change uh, fairly regularly. Um, you know, out in uh, the Aspen Forum, uh, what was it, a few weeks ago, uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, talked about doing the needful. Um, that yes. was either poorly chosen words or mm -hmm. a reflection of what he truly thinks. The needful is not enough. And, and I think that's been the approach of the NSC for the most part in this in this crisis, which is they want to do just enough uh, to help the Ukrainians stave off the Russians, but not so much that it actually tips the balance in the Ukrainians' favor. Right. My my sense, you know, look, I I live in Dallas, but I I do talk to a lot of people in in D.C. and and follow things pretty closely. My sense is that the State Department and the Pentagon are a little more hawkish when it mm -hmm. comes to uh, helping Ukraine. And uh, I think left to their own devices, they would be ramping up assistance even more than it has been. But the reason I say it, it seems to be changing, we have been doing, we, the, the United States, uh, obviously with the full United Biden administration support, have been ramping up assistance. Um, and I think it helps to see the positive results of the assistance we're providing, that the Ukrainians have right. been using it very smartly, very effectively. Um, and, and this, I think we also have to recognize we, the, the importance of morale in all of mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm. uh, if we continue to provide the Ukrainians with what they need, that will be a big boost to the morale on the Ukrainian side. If we don't, if we hold back, um, that will be a boost to the Russian side when it comes to morale. But right now, it seems to me that the Russians are getting their butts kicked. Um, and the more that happens, the less likely I think you'll see people agree to join the Wagner mercenaries fighting, people in prisons falling for these offers as, as recruiters go in there to find right. people to man the front lines. If the Ukrainians are able to take out more ammo depots and command centers and everything, that will leave a lot of Russian forces exposed to Ukrainian artillery and other ways for the Ukrainians to defend themselves. That will damage morale among the Russians even more, and that will be a boost to right. the Ukrainians even more. Yeah, and we're even seeing now for the first time, Ukraine is outranging Russia. 
on on artillery, which is pretty remarkable because in artillery that was where Russia had the advantage. Just sticking for a moment on these splits in the administration, to, to what extent do you think this is a function of organizations? I mean, I, I mean, is the NSC traditionally more cautious than state or the Pentagon, or is this a function of more personalities? Um, the, the Defense Secretary Austin and, and Secretary of State Blinken on the more more hawkish side, and, and Jake Sullivan on the on the more cautious side. Each administration is different, so I don't think you can uh, generalize it in a bureaucratic sense. Um, I I think in every administration, it does boil down to the personalities involved. Um, I I think the administration came into office, remember, in January uh, 2021 um, with an interest in focusing on China and climate change and, and the Iran deal and so on. Russia was not at the top of the list. The expression we've talked about before yes. that the administration wanted to park Russia so that it could focus on these other issues. Well, Putin decided he didn't want to be parked. Um, and so, not surprisingly. Um, I, exactly. Yeah. And, and so I think in that respect, we, uh, the, the administration was forced to deal with an issue it didn't really want to deal with. It was forced to spend time dealing with Putin. It started out, remember, um, President Biden was pretty hawkish at the beginning um, when he was asked by, I think it was George Stephanopoulos, do you think Putin is a is a killer? killer. And he went, uh-huh. Um, and so uh, I don't know if that had been prepared by the NSC for President Biden or not, but Biden's initial instincts were at least closer to where I would like him to be. Then, of course, with the Russian military buildup, there was a feeling that the administration had to engage with with uh, Putin. Um, and so there was the famous summit last June right. in Geneva. And, and then, of course, Putin comes out with his article published on the Kremlin website and growing concern throughout the fall into the winter with uh, the Russian military buildup. So um, I, I think the NSC did not want to deal with Russia. Um, state and, and the Pentagon at that point I think recognized that um, engaging with Russia um, was probably large, largely fruitless, although there was interest on arms control agreements that I don't think would have come to fruition anyway, even if Russia hadn't invaded Ukraine. But um, I think the NSC um, took on a more solicitous approach toward the Kremlin and toward Putin with that summit invitation than probably state and Pentagon would have liked to have seen. Mm. Now, another thing that's being debated right now, they're, they're, and the split here is not within the administration between the NSC and the State Department, but it's more between the administration on one hand and Congress on the other. And this is the designation of Russia as a state sponsor of terrorism. Uh, there is a bipartisan resolution, a non-binding bipartisan resolution that passed the Senate, uh, co-sponsored by Senators Blumenthal of Connecticut and Graham of, of South Carolina. There's also movement in the House, um, the, an attempt to maybe move, the, you know, force the administration's hands. Uh, Nancy Pelosi has made made remarks about this, uh, telling the secretary, if you don't do this, we will. Um, this, the, the, and here, the administration seems pretty unified about not wanting to do this. How do you view this? Because I've read our arguments on both sides saying, look, doing this might not really be that effective and could actually be counterproductive. How do you view this issue? Yeah, it's, 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 I think, a tougher issue than some people make it out to be. Um, the, the, those countries that have been designated state sponsors of terror are uh, the worst of the worst. In light of Putin's 
actions in Ukraine where Russian forces, it seems to me, and I think many others, are guilty of war crimes, crimes against humanity, and possibly even genocide. How is that not uh, right. the essential equivalent of, of state terrorism? Um, so, so I think there is the moral argument. There, there's the argument of consistency um, that uh, we should apply this in the case of Russia. Um, and, and I actually favor that part of the argument. There's the other argument that says if you do this, you essentially cut off diplomatic relations. Right. And, and I, I'm not saying Russia has threatened to cut off diplomatic relations if we do this. It, it essentially means we do. We don't yeah. really have – I'm trying to think of the countries who have designated – Syria, Iran, North Korea – Syria, Iran, North Korea, and Cuba. Exactly. And we have a mission in Cuba. Um, but, uh, you know, we don't have an embassy in Syria anymore. Uh, Ron, we don't obviously nor North Korea. So Cuba is the only one we do. And there's been controversy about the designation of, of Cuba as the yes. state sponsor. Um, but if we were to designate Russia, I think that would likely mean a break in diplomatic relations. Hmm. I, I have to here too. I'm a little torn to be honest. Right. Um, I don't really understand the value of allowing uh, Anatoly Antonov to stay in, in Washington. I think he's worse than useless. Um, and most of the people in the Russian embassy don't engage in diplomatic activity. They tr they engage in spying and recruiting. Right. Um, so, uh, frankly, even before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, I wondered what the value was. But I obviously wasn't advocating expelling them. But um, I, I think the administration worries if they were either forced to take this step or, or Congress made it happen, that would end any possibility of getting right. – uh, Paul Whelan, uh, Brittany Greiner, uh, Mark Fogel um, out of Russia, it would mean zero opportunities to talk on uh, arms control, although I think, frankly, uh, the, the odds of that are pretty low. Anyway, it, it, it could affect the negotiations with Iran, which – uh, the administration attaches a lot of importance to on trying to revive that deal. Most Republicans do not. Um, so so it, it, it's a tricky issue to, in my yeah. view, Brian. It's, it's a long answer to, to your question, but I think it's a little trickier um, than just coming clearly down on one side or the other. That, at the end of the day, the, at the end of the day, though, I do think if Russia isn't committing terrorism against Ukraine, and I don't quite know what else to call it other than crimes against humanity and genocide. Yeah, I'm like you, David. I'm torn on this. I mean, on, on the moral and symbolic aspect of it, I want I would like to see this happen. But nobody's made a compelling case to me how this would help Ukraine win. In fact, it, it doesn't really seem to add anything. And now on the other hand, I'm like, you know, how is Cuba a state sponsor of terrorism and Russia's not? You know, that's the other, that's the, the Iran, Syria, in, in North Korea. Yeah, fair enough. But it's just, it, it seems like there's there's inconsistency. Along the same lines, do we, in terms of like punishing Russia, are, do you see sanctions we should be imposing that we have not yet imposed? We seem to have imposed a pretty comprehensive sanction package on Russia. We have. I think there are a lot more banks, though, that we could go after. Mm. I would. I would have, if you will, a blanket um, sanction on on Russian banks, uh, so that there are not any exemptions for access to the SWIFT banking system. Um, I, I think the Europeans have to ramp up uh, their measures when it comes to energy. They, they're already suffering, and, and this is, this raises a concern. I think right. about 
the sustainability of the Europeans to remain tough and unified when it comes to dealing with with the Putin regime. Um, but they also need to come to the realization that remaining dependent in the least on Russia um, is going to be a problem for them because Putin will exercise this leverage that he has over them. It's, it's to be clear, um, a mutual dependency because Russia also needs that revenue that the right. Europeans provide. Um, but the Europeans need to find alternative sources, I think, much faster than they originally anticipated. And and so I, I think the sanctions, for the most part, there's the more secondary sanctions, I think, that could be done. Um, this is also an issue that comes up with the state sponsors of, of terrorism concerns, um, which is they would essentially uh, force the administration to impose secondary sanctions across mm-hmm. the board with any company or country that does business with Russia. And, um, it, it, you know, there, there is the beyond that, though, there, back to the state sponsor of terrorism issue. Um, the question is, what more would it do or force the administration to do that it is not already doing when it comes to sanctions? There, there are some great efforts on the outside. There's this mcfall Yermak channel that's working on sanctions, and others have been right. putting forward uh, recommendations and suggestions. Um, but I, I do think there is one other area, Brian, that that we can and should be moving on much faster than at least it seems to me we are, and that is going from not just freezing but seizing Russian assets mm-hmm. and then making those funds available to the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't for the life of me imagine any scenario where we would return those funds, and, and, and most of it is not in the United States, to be clear. Most of it's in Europe, but it seems unconscionable to me that anyone would consider returning the Russian foreign uh, hard currency reserves that are what, what some $300 billion, right. much higher than the assets that have been frozen in uh, in the hands of Russian oligarchs, although I don't believe in returning those either. That to me is, I think, where uh, some of the financial economic attention needs to be focused. And you mentioned the European energy dependency. How concerned are you about this winter? I mean, there's been a lot of talk that as the winter sets in, as the energy crisis really begins to bite, if inflation's still an issue, that not just Europe, but Europe and the United States might begin to waver uh, on, on, on their support for Ukraine and be kind of compelled to sue for peace. Do, do, are you worried about that, or do you think this is a red herring? I, I am worried. Look, let me let me answer it in two ways. Uh, talking to a friend of mine this morning, um, he he suggested looking at it uh, through the lens of the three P's. The uh, first is pressure, the ability for us to maintain pressure on Russia. The second is pain, the ability to absorb pain, Russians' ability to absorb pain our, in, in particular, Europeans' ability to absorb pain. And the third is production capacity. Um, are we able to uh, maintain the production that is needed to provide the assistance that Ukraine needs? I, I, I would also frame it a second way, which is three sustainability questions. Uh, the first is, can the Ukrainians sustain their military effort against Russia? I think the answer is yes. Um, obviously, it, it is heavily dependent on our assistance, but I, I do think that they can sustain it. The second sustainability question is, 
can the Russians sustain this military campaign? And I think there were real doubts about whether it can uh, over an extended period of time. I, I think there are limits to uh, how much more the Russians can suffer in terms of losses. The third sustainability question comes at exactly what you were saying, which is um, can the Western assistance and Western attention and focus be sustained? And I don't know the answer, um, e even in this country. Um, if there were a change uh, in the House, for example, would that weaken congressional support for further assistance that is going to be needed? Um, and then, as you rightly point out, with winter, I mean, I realize it's the middle of August, but uh, leaders have to be thinking ahead to, to winter. And if it's a cold one, um, that's going to create more hardship for Europeans. At the end of the day, though, I think our Western leaders need to remind our populations it's not to dismiss or take lightly the hardships that Europeans, Americans are facing with high inflation and, and all of these challenges. But think about what the Ukrainians are sacrificing. Right. Um, compared to what they are enduring, ours is nothing by comparison. They are dying every single day trying to defend themselves against a wholly unprovoked, unjustified invasion with, with atrocities committed every single day, never knowing when they go to bed at night whether they'll wake up the next morning in their apartment buildings. And so it seems to me that, yes, we have some sacrifices to make, but they pale in comparison to what the Ukrainians are enduring. Although I'll tell you what, when I made that argument on Twitter, I got positively flamed. <laughs> I, I agree with you. That's the argument we should be making. And, and I'm trying to make it as much as I can. But I, I, I made that argument on Twitter and I got flamed. I mean, it was I, I had never experienced anything like that before. This is why I don't do Twitter or any social media. <laughs> I, know, I know. I never get to tag you when you're on my show. Um, before we move <laughs> into the second half, when I imagine the positive, optimistic scenario that I, that I think we all want to imagine, Dave, there's something that... I, I raised it in my intro and I asked the question, do Western leaders, some Western leaders have a fear of victory, a fear that winning, doing too well in this war will, will provoke Putin. The whole idea that the U.S. is telling Ukraine not to hit Russian territory with, with U.S. provided weapons and, and so on. Do you think this, there is anything to this? Do you see kind of a fear of winning and people would rather just have it go back to being a frozen conflict, which you, you argue in your piece it would be disastrous? Yeah, I, I do think it would be disastrous. I mean, a, a prolonged conflict is 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 probably the worst or close to the worst scenario for Ukraine because it just means extended uh, suffering for many Ukrainians. The worst scenario, obviously, is a Russian victory in Ukraine, which I don't think is is imaginable anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I, look, I think there are two elements to the fear, Brian. One is the risk of escalation, and we, we touched on this a bit already, right. um, that if we if we really uh, help the Ukrainians succeed and the situation is looking dire for Russia, that Putin might escalate with resort to uh, weapon of mass destruction. Uh, again, uh, we got to re remind the Russians, um, we have a few of those ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and that uh, any deployment of something that then uh, drifts over into a NATO state could wind up being an Article 5 situation. But I think there's the, uh, another element uh, of the fear among some in the Western community, and that is if, if we help Ukraine beat Russia, defeat the Russian forces, could that trigger regime change of some sort? And could that be an even worse scenario? It, it, could the alternative to Putin be worse? Mm -hmm. My view on that is 
I think the current Russian leader is about as bad as you can be. It's possible a replacement could be worse. I think it's also possible a replacement could be better. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think it's our call to make anyway. Um, I find uh, Mr. Putin, and I've believed this for a long, long time, uh, to be a dangerous existential threat, first and foremost to his own people, to his neighbors, but also to us. And so I don't think we should be um, driven by fear or paralyzed by fear um, that someone worse could come after Putin. That actually winds up maybe unintentionally, leading us to try to keep Putin in power. I don't think that's in our capabilities either, by the way. But it would affect how we approach assistance to Ukraine. And I think our assistance should be driven with the goal of helping Ukraine win. Yeah, one of the things that, you know, of course, Macron's infamous statement that we have to avoid humiliating Russia or humiliating Putin. And my, I was like, why? <laughs> why? And in your regime exactly. change scenario, David, the thing about the regime change scenario is I agree something worse than Putin could come, but that would be in a scenario of a severely, severely weakened Russia. So it really wouldn't matter as much if it's a, if it's a Russia that is military and econ economically crippled as a result of this, th this war. That, you know that that's 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 uh, that's that, that's not really going to be our, our our problem. It might be the problem of the Russian people, but it wouldn't certainly wouldn't be our problem. A, a, a somebody who would be worse than Putin coming in um, is not going to alleviate the situation that the Russian people and the sort of the circle right. around Putin are are enduring themselves. So a, if somebody worse than Putin were to come in, I don't know how long that person would have in power. Right. No. I, I, Point taken, um, and this is something. Oleg Koshin has a really good piece in the New York Times today about the about this, about these kinds of scenarios. Um, but they are basically speculation at this point. Well, that's a good play, good way to segue. In a few moments, we'll continue our discussion, broaden the aperture, and look into our crystal balls to ask what would a decisive Ukrainian victory mean for European security going forward. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power of the Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as the Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas, Texas. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кто бореться и бореться розумно, здобуває перемогу. Вічна слава усім нашим воїнам, вічна пам'ять усім, чиє життя забрали окупанти. Слава Україні! So let's suspend disbelief and imagine for a moment, for the sake of argument, the following scenario. Russia is defeated decisively in Ukraine. 
driven out of the Donbass, driven out of southern Ukraine, and perhaps even driven out of Crimea. Humiliated and weakened, the Putin regime is forced to sue for peace. Its military shattered, its economy in tatters, and its ability to project power abroad severely weakened. Imagine the scenario U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin outlined in April. The United States wants to, quote, see Russia weaken to the degree that it can, can't do the kind of things that it's done in invading Ukraine. When I think of this scenario, David, which, by the way, as we said in the first half, is not really unrealistic at all, one thought comes to mind. This could be a 1989 redux, because just as a weakening Soviet power in the late 1980s led to the fall of pro-Soviet regimes across the former Warsaw Pact, so too the weakening of Russian power today will likely have repercussions in the former Soviet space. And the fallout should be felt in Russian clients like Belarus, as well as in countries struggling to free themselves from Moscow's influence like Georgia and Moldova. And David, you and I will soon be in Georgia to get a look at how how, how that country, is. Uh, we've not been there since since late 2019. Um, so, but David, rein me in if you need to here. Um, am I getting ahead of my skis? Um, uh, and, and, you know, or, or could a Russian defeat in Ukraine actually be the prelude to a 1989 moment? Well, first we have to get there. And, yeah. and I, I do think, however, Brian, you're right to be raising this. I, I, I think the, uh, West needs to be thinking about that kind of scenario mm-hmm. where Putin and, and his regime are defeated in Ukraine. I think it is possible. Um, it, it's going to be done uh, on the backs of the Ukrainians. I mean, let's be clear about mm-hmm. that. I, I do have enormous, endless, you too, uh, admiration for mm-hmm. uh, what the Ukrainians have accomplished so far. I mean, think about where this started on February 24th when some thought this would be over in a matter of days, and, and some of those people were in the Kremlin, I dare say, mm-hmm. um, and and where they are now. The convoy that was threatening Kiev is, is long gone in, in mm-hmm. history. And uh, the the ambitions of Putin and the generals have been significantly scaled back. The the thinking that the Russians now were going to regain momentum and were going to uh, extend their control in the Donbass and the southern part of Ukraine, that really hasn't happened. I mean, the, the, any advances that Russia have made have been incremental at best. And so um, I, I think now, particularly with the additional assistance with the HIMARS and everything that the Ukrainians are getting, a defeat of the Russians is imaginable. Um, and, uh, it, and it could happen fairly quickly. Um, if, if we really are successful in helping the Ukrainians and the Russian fighters start giving up and losing morale, and we've seen some evidence of this, um, then Putin is no longer a strong leader if he doesn't have the forces to carry out his orders. And so I do think that that is a possibility. I don't think either one of us is going to say it's going to happen, no. but I think it is within the realm of possibility, yes. and we need to think about what it means, what it means for the region, what it means inside Russia itself. Right. Uh, you and I have many friends who have been suffering under this regime. Many of them have left, um, some of whom are still there, uh, like our friend Vladimir Karamurzer, exactly. Ilya Yashin, and others. Uh, and Alexei Navalny, of course. Um, and so uh, the Russians are the ones who have paid the price first and foremost for Putin's uh, crackdown. And I would uh, now describe it as fascist control right. in the country. Um, but the neighbors uh, along Russia's borders have paid a terrible price in many cases, too. And freed from that 
threat, um, those countries would then have, I think, the greatest possibility they would have to really prosper, to join whatever institutions they wanted in the Euro-Atlantic community. But I think, Brian, it goes even beyond the region. It would have global repercussions. Um, and uh, the Chinese hopefully would think twice before doing anything when it comes to Taiwan, because it would also come as a result not just of the Ukrainians' uh, determination and bravery and again, capabilities, it would also come as a result of a united West that didn't back down and helped right. Ukraine to victory and helped defeat Russia. Let's, let's uh, the time we have left, kind of drill down in the region a little bit. I mean, I, I, I think that if Ukraine wins this war, a free Belarus is very possible and perhaps even likely. Um, I think that where countries that are backsliding at the moment, such as Georgia, um, again, where we will be in a couple of, of weeks, um, really looking forward to that, um, th- that would change the political dynamics there, loosen Ivanishvili's uh, grip on that country and allow Georgia to go where I believe and you believe where Georgians truly want to go. Moldova under Maya Sandu, which is actually making a lot of progress right now, would really be freed up. Um, so how do, do you do you how do you do you share my optimism there that this could really be a game changer, specifically but not exclusively in those three countries? Yes, I, I think you're absolutely right, and I think you put your finger on the key countries that would be affected there. I, I, I think a Russian defeat in in Ukraine spells the end of Lukashenko's rule, uh, because um, I, I, I think without Putin's support, Lukashenko will fall in, in a minute, frankly. Um, he has depended for years, but particularly since August of 2020, on Russian support for staying in power. And I think Belarusians would be so energized by seeing a Ukrainian victory that they will bring about the end of Lukashenko's regime one way or another. Um, so I, I do think that a Ukrainian victory and a Russian defeat um, do open the, the real possibility of a, a new day for Belarus, which would be welcome uh, for, for all of its people. Um, I, I think in the case of Moldova, as you right, rightly point out, Maya Sandu has been doing a great job already um, as president under some very adverse conditions, particularly in the Transnistrian part. Um, I think that could also spell uh, a change in Transnistria, uh, where Russia's ability to maintain its support there, uh, what, 1,200 to 1,300 mm-hmm. forces there or so, um, might no longer be uh, able to stay there um, and might they might finally withdraw. So we might actually see the fulfillment of the 1999 Istanbul commitments of Russian withdrawal from uh, Moldovan and Georgian territory. And that brings us to Georgia, as you point out, we'll be there in a few weeks, um, a country uh, that you know is near and dear to my heart. I traveled there many, many times. Uh, the people are amazing. The, it, it, it's a fantastic country for any of your listeners who have not yeah, been there. Yeah, visit, visit. visit Georgia if you can. <laughs> exactly. Uh, not easy to get to, but worth the, worth the slip. And um, but yes, uh, very concerned about developments there for sure. The role of Ivanashvili, who was prime minister the first year after 2012 elections, um, but is essentially the power behind the throne, pulling all the strings, um, and a government that has been behaving, I think, in a pretty bad way with. Uh, four parliamentarians supposedly leaving the Georgian Dream Party, the ruling party, 
but then using their their so-called claim as having left the party to attack the U.S. ambassador, to attack the United States and the EU, um, very disturbing developments in Georgia. So our conference there will be very timely to remind them that we're paying attention um, and that we care and we want Georgia to succeed, but the current trends are going in the wrong direction there. Yeah, and I'm back to our discussion on sanctions in the in the first half. I mean, one person I would like to see sanctioned is Ivanishvili. If a if a case can be convincingly made that he's helping Russians uh, evade sanctions, and I know a lot of our friends in Georgia do believe he is doing that, um, I would like to see that, and that that could be a game changer in Georgia. Um, as we're bumping up against the end here, David, I did want to kind of maybe be a little bit of a skunk at the garden party, but in the careful what you wish for category. Does this optimistic scenario contain pitfalls? I mean, are we going to be moving into a, a new security situation that you know looks like a good, like a, a very positive situation? Does it contain pitfalls? And and are people? Do you think people right now in, at, at the State Department, at the NSC, are preparing for this potentially optimistic scenario, or is the U.S. government not that forward thinking? I, I'm, I'm having never served. I don't know. Yeah, no, I, there are people for sure thinking about various scenarios in the intelligence community and in the policy world. There's no question about that. I'm sure a number of papers are being prepared, but it's such a – it's been both a fluid situation and a stuck situation, if that's not contradictory. Mm. Um, and, and so I do think that they are preparing. Look, I, I, I think – we have to let the Ukrainians decide how they're going to play this. Um, and that includes um, on the military side, but also on the diplomatic. I don't think we in the West should be talking about diplomacy. Um, mm. The Russians have so, shown zero interest mm. in conducting serious negotiations. I think the only way they might come to the table in a serious way is if they're getting their butts kicked. Um, and I think that's why it's in our interest to help the Ukrainians move in that direction. Um, so I, I think talk of diplomacy, in fact, um, weakens or sends the wrong message, let's put it that mm. way, sends mixed messages about our resolve to help the Ukrainians toward victory and defeat Russia. Um, the Ukrainians are in the driver's seat. They're the ones on the front lines. They're the ones who need to be deciding what they want to do, how they want to do it, at what speed. We don't want them to overextend themselves, um, but they are in the best position to judge um, how to approach this uh, from a military perspective, from a political perspective. Um, they need financial support now, not just when the war ends. They're running a budget deficit, I heard earlier today, of 4 to $5 billion mm -hmm. a month, um, and that is not sustainable. So they need infusions of financial assistance to avoid a total uh, meltdown there. And, and so uh, we have to do everything, I think, to help them. Um, it, it's been, to me, an incredibly tragic story, but also an incredibly inspiring story mm -hmm. at the same time. And uh, if we can't get behind uh, the Ukrainians as they – fight for their lives, literally, um, I'm not quite sure what what motivates us then. And, and in terms of the geopolitical landscape going forward, like, I mean, are, are we thinking now about in this post-war scenario, this optimistic post-war scenario, what do we do with Georgia, Moldova, and Ukraine? Do we fast track them into NATO? Do we push for that? I mean, you were involved in, 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 in one the last time we, we, we tried to do that. Um, as far as Russia goes, what's the price of readmission to polite society in a post-war environment for Russia? Are they, is this being gamed out, uh, these kinds of scenarios right now? 
I, I, I imagine they are. I mean, I think in the case of Russia, um, the only way to be allowed back into polite society, so to speak, is if they uh, go through a regime change. Um, I, how could how could we let Putin sit at a table with? I mean, the G20 is going to be interesting in November, yeah. uh, where Putin plans to go to Indonesia. Um, that's going to be incredibly. I'm not convinced mm-hmm. at the end of the day, by the way, that he will. Um, in the case of Ukraine and Moldova and and Georgia, um, if Ukraine is victorious in this war, NATO would be lucky to have Ukraine mm-hmm. as a NATO member. In mm-hmm. my view. So I think we should definitely accelerate um, Ukraine's membership aspirations. Um, Moldova doesn't want to join NATO, but of course, like Ukraine, wants to join the European Union. Seems to me that it is definitely moving in the right direction. Georgia, of course, was a country that was left out among the trio, and uh, it was not given candidacy status. Um, I hope that changes because, as you pointed out earlier, Brian, the Georgian people are in the right place. Right. Uh, they remain strongly supportive of joining NATO, strongly supportive of joining the European Union. Um, it's the current leadership that's holding right. them back and the problems of uh, a certain oligarch uh, where the EU even mentioned the importance of de-oligarchization yes. in Georgia. Um, so, so those issues need to be addressed. But I think Ukraine has more than demonstrated um, it is worthy of being a member, and, and we would be lucky to have them. Yeah, I know we indeed would, and this would indeed be a, a very a very nice problem to have, is trying to figure out how to, how to handle this new, sure. improved uh, security uh, situation. I'm watching the clock attentively and mindful that you have to get to a meeting, David, so I guess we will wrap it up. That's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from Dallas, Texas, is the one and only David Kramer, who served as Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor in the administration of President George W. Bush. David also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs, where he worked on Belarus, Moldova, Russia, and Ukraine. These days, David serves as a managing, as the Managing Director for Global Policy at the George W. Bush Institute in Dallas. David, as always, thanks for an enlightening discussion. It's been my pleasure, Brian. Great to see you. Same here. I'd also like to thank our awesome production team in in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg, who handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.